This is the Siècle. Supplemental 6. France and England after Waterloo. Welcome back to the Siècle. Just shy of one year ago today, I released episodes 0 and 1 of the Siècle, with no idea what kind of reception I would get for this experiment. I had 77 downloads that first day, just under 40 for each episode. Over the 12 months since January 23rd, 2019, I've released 22 different episodes, keeping more or less to a bi-monthly schedule, covering France's tumultuous period from Napoleon's first abdication in early 1814 to the birth of the Bourbon's long-sought heir, the Comte de Chambord, in the fall of 1820. In addition to the main narrative, we've taken digressions into topics from France's geography, to its constitution, to its peasants, to its literature. In the meantime, the podcast's audience has grown by leaps and bounds. From 39 downloads on the first day of episode 1, we've gone to 457 for episode 16, the most recent scripted episode, an order of magnitude higher. I'm so excited for what the next year will bring as the podcast will cover France's dramatic history through the transformational year of 1830, as well as exploring French society and life in topics such as religion, class, gender, age, and France's nascent colonial empire. The next scripted episode of the show will be coming out very soon. But in the meantime, I wanted to share with you a conversation I had with another superb history podcaster. Chris Fernandez-Packham of the Age of Victoria podcast, which is covering essentially the same time period as the Siècle, but with a focus on Great Britain. Chris and I hopped on a call to talk about how France and Britain experienced the years after Waterloo, and our conversation was fascinating. I was personally most interested in how, despite being the big winner of the Napoleonic Wars, and despite being poised for a century of tremendous power, Britain's experience in the first few years after Waterloo was surprisingly rocky, and poor, buffeted France ends up looking pretty good in some areas. Our discussion starts with me providing a brief overview of France's experience during the years after Waterloo. So, France after the Napoleonic Wars was sort of dominated by two big structural factors. One of them obviously was politics. This is a country that has spent a generation seesawing between various different regimes. Uh, Now the Restoration Monarchy was frankly trying to build up a sense of legitimacy with a very divided populace. Politically, uh, France at this time had a very restrictive electoral franchise. Uh, Obviously, most countries in the world had very restrictive electoral franchises at this time, but France was particularly restrictive. About 1% of adult men were rich enough to have the vote under the Charter of 1814. That's about... uh, 0.3% or so of the entire country, counting women, obviously, who weren't allowed to vote, as well as minors. But lots of people who couldn't vote were still really interested in politics. Uh, Ordinary people had opinions about the Bourbons and Napoleon, about the revolution, the Catholic Church, and so on. When we're talking about this 1%, obviously, they're they're wealthy and probably fairly well-educated. But what about the rest of the interested population? How literate was the sort of mass electorate? The... Broader French population, uh, it really depends on what part of the country you're looking at. Uh, in the cities, a lot of people weren't literate or fully weren't fully literate. Uh, they could maybe at most sign their name or something like that. 
but we're still would still follow politics closely. A lot of times, for example, the one person in your group who did know how to read would read the newspaper out loud at a cafe or bar, uh, and people would, would follow the news from Paris that way. Uh, out in the countryside, uh, literacy was even lower, although, again, this varied from region to region. There were parts of the country that had very high rates of literacy, such as the northeast around Strasbourg, Alsace-Lorraine, uh, and other parts that had very low literacy in the, the south and west of the country. Even if you didn't have a strong opinion about the more abstract ideas of uh, royalism, the revolution, Napoleon, etc., people still cared about, for example, if the land they had bought during the revolution was going to be confiscated by the restoration government and given back to the church, mm. or if peasants would have to resume performing feudal dues to their lords, uh, having to work on the roads in the area or give over part of the grain, etc., and everybody cared if conscription was going to come back. On top of that, you had international politics, of course. In the immediate aftermath of Waterloo, most of France was uh, occupied by international armies, who were ostensibly there as France's allies, but not only humiliated the people who were under occupation, but also sort of plundered pretty liberally from the people they were occupying. And the regions mm. that weren't occupied had a sort of domestic terrorism going on, the so-called white terror, as royalists sought revenge on their liberal or Bonapartist opponents. Uh, meanwhile, the government uh, passed all sorts of repressive laws, criminalizing, uh, shouting, uh, vive Napoleon, vive l'empereur. Uh, that, that, that could get you locked up in jail. There's one uh, funny story of a farmer who's arrested because his chicken laid an egg that looks sort of like Napoleon. Yeah, which, uh, which was obviously a, a strange experiment in genetics gone wrong. Um, yes. <laughs> but, um, but out of interest then, so you've got these armies of occupation and you've got the sort of restored Bourbons. Do you sort of have a view on why the country didn't actually come apart? Why did it hold together as a political entity? Part of that was that none of the other countries in Europe who were sort of calling the shots after Waterloo wanted the end of France as a country. Uh, there were a few Prussians who were uh, interested in dismembering France. But by and large, all the great powers of Europe thought that a restored monarchist France was better for the balance of power in Europe. They thought it was better to have a, a strong, centrally controlled, royalist bourbon France. And they didn't want more chaos and, uh, and more warfare and, uh, and all that. And, you know, France had a pretty strong tradition of central government. The, this centralizing efforts going back to uh, Louis XIV and then accentuated during the revolution under Napoleon had left a very powerful French state uh, that even, even when things were at their most chaotic, uh, was still exerting a powerful influence on people's everyday lives. Uh, of course, the question of who controlled the state remained a, a big one throughout this whole period. The, the Bourbon monarchy uh, didn't really have a lot of legitimacy. Uh, they, they were relatively new. This whole form of government was relatively new. Obviously, they claimed an ancient heritage that, that gave them the right to rule. But, you know, the French people had experience with other types of government, and probably no more than half the country was really, truly supportive of, of the Bourbons. So you saw in, in the, the 18-teens and 1820s a lot of whipsawing back and forth as even this very small electorate, this very small group of people, kept changing their minds about which type of government they wanted, both in terms of people switching, actually changing their votes, and then people, whether or not people bothered to show up to vote. Uh, so you had a extreme right-wing government right after Waterloo, uh, and then elections the next year later returned a centrist, uh, moderate royalist government, and then the liberals gained strength, and then there was a backlash against them, and uh, the conservatives gained strength again. And 
So even though very few people could vote, that shouldn't imply that there wasn't actual politics going on. A lot of this is the big issues that were being debated. Uh, the question of the Constitution and the, ch- the role of the church and the state. And of course, there's also plenty of small small bar stuff, people trying to get jobs and investments in their districts and stuff like that. But Because I, I remember in one of your shows, you were mentioning sort of the role of the Catholic Church in all of this. So a, a lot of the revolution had been very anti-state religion, and anti-Catholicism. How was the reaction when sort of the growth of the church and the growth of church power was becoming more obvious after the restoration? So the restoration obviously uh, endorsed Catholicism as sort of the state religion of France. Uh, there was sort of a, a big a compromise in which some people wanted to recognize uh, Catholicism as the religion of the majority of Frenchmen, other people as the religion of the state. Some people wanted nothing to do with it. But in general, uh, you know, Catholicism was promoted as a state policy, uh, never as much as the uh, the Catholic uh, partisans wanted. Uh, the, the Restoration never quite went as far as as many people thought it should in terms of promoting Catholicism. But, uh, you know, there's lots of state money that was spent on religious art, uh, Lots of people were went to, to seminaries. Uh, a lot of uh, new priests were, were, were created, etc. And whether you liked this or not depended on your politics and religion. Uh, if, if you were a, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool Catholic, then this was all great and it just needed to go even further. Uh, there were lots of people in French, of course, who were not particularly Catholic or even outwardly uh, anti-Catholic or atheist. Uh, legacies of the Revolution and the Enlightenment. And these people... Uh, were highly offended by all this. Uh, so there were lots of little flashpoints. There were students protesting. There were professors who were dismissed for giving uh, lectures that were perceived as anti-Catholic, etc. Uh, just really quickly before I, I sort of want to mm. talk about uh, the, the experience of England in this time, uh, I gotta, as I said, I, you shouldn't put too much emphasis on politics because, mm. uh, again, only a small percentage of the people could vote. Uh, and even though ordinary people still followed politics, there are big structural economic issues that were really affecting uh, pe- ordinary people's lives. Starting with, you know, in 1814, 1815, France was coming off a generation of war and one that had been fought in, I guess, a much more personal way than Britain's experience with the Napoleonic Wars, which, of course, was was still very significant. Uh, that, there were that's, mil- that's interesting because from the British point of view, the, at the time, France was it, – it was culturally – respected obviously it always had been in british culture but it there was a real bitterness to the conflict that sort of is quite unusual when you look at a lot of british military history and a bit of british political history there isn't usually this sort of vicious antagonism that you were starting to get towards the french at the end of the napoleonic wars so i think for the british coming off the end of these napoleonic wars it must have been quite a culture shock that well the old enemy that we've been fighting for 20 years odd now is actually it's all over and i wonder if did the french sort of experience maybe that kind of feeling of dislocation to a certain degree yes but i think for the french the experience of this whole revolution napoleonic era again the, the changes have been happening inside france itself so people had their the, the the struggle of the their relationship with Britain. There were there were various trade conflicts. One of the, the Restoration government uh, signed a trade deal with Britain that was very unpopular. For example, people didn't like British goods flooding the market. 
Parisians didn't like all the British tourists who flooded into the city to <laughs> uh, live it up with the uh, favorable exchange rate. But whereas for, for Britain, the experience of the Revolutionary Wars had been all these changes over there. In France, it was all these changes here. So in addition mm. to their relationship with Britain, the French were grappling with all the things that had changed in their country. So it was, it was a little bit less of a strict back and forth uh, in the same way that it was for the, the British. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, there had been, you know, a, quite a significant body of support for Napoleon and the revolution in British intellectual circles. It wasn't all uh, anti-French or anti-Napoleonic. And I think, in a way, no one's lucky when their country is occupied. But I think the French were actually incredibly lucky that it wasn't the Prussians unchecked that did it. So absolutely. The uh, the French were very lucky that the Prussians uh, didn't have complete control. The Prussians wanted to uh, blow up bridges, uh, dismember the country. Uh, they were very bitter over the admittedly, you know, the French had done the same things to them. Uh, they, they want this one. They were very much about an eye for an eye. Uh, and uh, uh, Wellington and, and other people were much more interested in a, a gentle occupation that could reform France rather than destroy it. Uh, but just to get back to what I was talking about earlier, uh, uh, you know, millions of French people had been do uh, killed or, or wounded. Uh, there were high taxes to pay for the war. Mm. Uh, British blockades had just devastated the trade in France's port towns, which had been once been very prosperous and now were shells of their former selves. Mm. Uh, so, you know, by far the single most popular policy in France in 1814-1815 was peace. People wanted an end to the war, at least for a little bit. They wanted a breather. And the country needed it. But of course, then in 1816 comes the year without a summer, uh, when uh, weather, bad weather causes harvest failures around the world, uh, mm. including especially in, in large parts of France, which pushes many people to the brink of starvation. Especially yeah, and because I think actually just just I think it's important to make it clear to listeners to the podcast is just how a how agrarian these societies we're talking about are you know you, the Something bulk like of the population of the french people lived in rural areas in uh 1815 or so yeah and you'd be looking at similar figures for the for the united kingdom and also we ought to remind people is food production was in many ways intensely local because of the lack of food storage so it's not like today where it was where it's relatively easy to stockpile food for long-term uh, disaster management, we're talking about an era where if your food is going to be preserved, it, you're talking salting, smoking, um, limited freezing capacity sometimes, um, but really not very much is available. And so it makes these societies very fragile when it comes to famines, doesn't it? Absolutely. The, the French had, had traditionally experienced a harvest failure every decade or so over the, the past the century or so preceding this. Uh, they were becoming rarer. To agricultural technology was improving. Uh, yields were getting higher. But, you know, especially if you were a peasant, you were often on the brink. You were farming very small plots of land, often having to do day labor uh, or, or piecework on the side in order to make enough money to buy food. And then, of course, you had a year where it's uh, cold and rainy the whole time, and uh, your your crop yields are terrible. And uh, on top of all that, the French government had a policy during their response to the crisis of uh, feeding the capital first. Louis did. Louis had seen what happened when hungry people took to the streets in 1789, and uh, he wanted Louis the 18th, the the King of France. Haven't mentioned that in this conversation yet. <laughs> uh, and so he prioritized uh, shipping food from the countryside into Paris 
to uh, keep the Parisians fed and quiet. And that worked. But it also accentuated the problem out in the rural areas. And so you saw huge upsurges in crime, uh, bread riots, even banditry. There were even organized bands of armed peasants that occupied whole towns. It turns out that most of the people punished under the post-Waterloo repressive laws that I talked about were punished mm -hmm. for this kind of famine-related crime rather than for supporting Napoleon. Exactly. And this, this event, this year without summer, I think it's it's the seminal event in many ways of the period because it comes on top of such a period of war for Europe, but it's actually just has a worldwide impact. This enormous cataclysmic volcanic eruption in 1815 in Mount Tambora, it's, it's one of the largest in recorded human history. And it destabilizes weather patterns around the world. You know, the monsoon is disrupted. The local area, the size of nearly Australia, is buried in ash and fallout. You have um, disruption to rivers in India that sort of lead to the rise of cholera um, and the first cholera epidemics. You have wild temperature swings in America. And that's particularly damaging because, of course, Europe actually does take a lot of things like wheat and rice from America. And these harvest supplies are interrupted as well. Yeah. So how is Britain affected by the year without the summer? My, my research suggests that it was less serious than France, but still mm. uh, still still a, a, a major uh, impact. Yeah. Britain really does suffer. Um, it suffers in some pretty devastating flooding that's the big thing for the british is that of course it just exacerbates all the rainfall the fields get deluged which means the crops start to rot you know and they can't produce it there's a lot of hunger and then they all have to deal with this huge influx of unemployed ex-soldiers that napoleonic wars are over um these men sort of flood the local labor markets just at a time when food production takes a massive hit um, and they know it's a crisis, but the government sort of tries to play it down. There's quite a lot of whitewashing in the press, but eventually there's a realization that this is a significant disaster. And of course, in places like Ireland, it is absolutely devastating for parts of Ireland um, it's not on the level of the later famine, but there are whole areas that are absolutely flooded out and the crops are completely lost again. You do get a start of an uptick in emigration from Ireland. The British state is not equipped to deal with this on a practical level and ideologically they're committed to this sort of free market economics where they don't like to give aid to people because they think it's interfering with the economy and that it will just make things worse you know the, so the it, sounds much... like, it sounds like britain uh, uh despite having arguably a more capable state at this point uh inter did less to respond to the uh effects of the, the crisis than the french government did which was of course in, in very dire straits uh but they still there was still relief and uh obviously you know they they shipped the grain into the mm. capital and they also placed state orders of grain from russia and america uh, there, there are various uh, relief programs. Uh, people were hired to build roads in order as a way of sort of giving money to people they could use to buy food, etc. It uh, sounds mm -hmm. like there was less of that in Britain. 
there is much less of it it does exist there there are schemes uh robert peel learns quite a lot about uh famine relief during this period and there are a lot of charitable schemes there's a lot of expectation that this falls on local government and on charity rather than on central government and britain does have a big advantage over a lot of countries is that she's drawing on her huge international trade networks so there is a bit of a buffer there where you know they can draw rice from india um, at prices that the locals sometimes can't afford they can bring in sugar and rum from the west indies are still available Um, and british presence in the mediterranean also means that they can access some you know things like uh, portuguese wines and fish and things like that so britain does have a bit of a cushion but britain also has has some terrible times you know it's touch and go in places whether this is going to be the event that kicks off the british revolution you know the, the authorities are absolutely convinced that only sort of strong repressive state action is going to keep britain from turning into mob rule and the evils as they see it of democracy and revolution and tyranny of the mob. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. We talked about how the French had various forms of unrest during this period, which, as you might expect, given this was a government that was relatively new and uh, trying to build legitimacy. Uh, But the British government, which... Uh, you know, it was coming off of a successful, victorious war, uh, which was well established, had built up popular support, still mm. encountered uh, all, all various challenges to its rule, even even if everything it seemed to have going for it. Well, absolutely. And I think the thing to the thing to remember is that Wellington and the British forces were popular and had done well. And the war had been excellent for some of the merchants, you know. The finance industry had done very well out of it. But there were problems the British state just didn't address. You know, it had a colossal democratic deficit, even by the standards of the time. It's not as democratic as it pretends to be. The aristocracy is sort of very reactionary and backward looking. And particularly, they have this problem that they can't engage their citizens at local levels as easily as they want you know they've got ex-soldiers who are sort of flooding the countryside 
they've got this rising merchant class that is challenging the old order and they're dealing with a complex international situation you know with commitments around the globe so the government is really stretched thin and it would need a really talented government and they do have some talented people in it but uh, the king at the time who was the prince regent and became george the fourth is absolutely hated you know he is not a popular figure he's well known to be uh absolute spendthrift you know he wastes a fortune you know his his personal spending on debts at one point is estimated that he could fit out a ship of the line <laughs> and that's the uh, that's the equivalent if president trump now said his debts were equivalent to fitting out a u.s aircraft carrier and he expected the state to pay for it like that's just staggering for everyone so the british government is not popular with its citizens and there are instances where you know you get a riot here over food or a riot somewhere else over unemployment and in one or two places the rioters raise pikes with red caps on them uh, you know which you know is hugely symbolic for the british government you know they they are instantly well this is it we're we're being challenged directly this is a direct attack on the state hit them hard what what was you the know. what were the the political demands of these uh, protesters and rioters in France you know when people were protesting against the bourbons they they would by sort of by default uh call for uh napoleonic principles of return from napoleon or uh they would call for uh, re- return to republican virtues what what was the what was the alternative in britain was it was it more democratization or was it a, a what what kind of changes were they calling for yeah i mean by our standards it was quite modest often the demands were bread which was the first one um which always you know, is, <laughs> yeah it, and it's the staple product and you'd think well why shouldn't people have access to at least a secure food supply um a lot of people demanded the right for trade unions um which was seen as basically sedition you know it's coercive it interferes with the free market doctrines trade unionists are sometimes arrested tried transported to the australian colonies the other things they often want is uh, a widening of the suffrage they want the right to petition parliament or the king for redress of grievances Uh, they want more elections they want some really basic things but there's no real call for an overthrow of the state in the way that the french did but to the british authorities it was the same kind of call in france even though uh you know people were calling for drastic overthrow of the state it's interesting that at least in the 18 teens and early 1820s there was not a lot of agitation to democratize the system, which was even less democratic than the uh, the British one. A much smaller share of, of French people could vote than of, uh, of, of British people. Uh, but even the left-wing reformers were not demanding or proposing expansions of the suffrage in, at this time in France. That would happen later. That would become a major issue in the late 1820s and the 1830s. But there's sort of a widespread assumption in the France of this time that only the well-to-do should, be, should have a vote. Uh, and that uh, the question was, you know, how do you structure it so that the right well-to-do people are the ones who are making decisions rather than uh, should we, heaven forbid, let poor, let poor people vote? <laughs> yeah, and that that's an almost mirror image of the 
kind of debates you get in Britain. But I think in Britain, they they do have the outlet of empire. Uh, they are quite willing to, you know, seize territory overseas if it's advantageous. And that requires a flow of military power and it requires the Navy. So they do have the Royal Navy, which is always hungry for manpower. And it allows them to push into uh, more aggressive trade positions in places like India. And they can leverage this, you know. And it's also, whatever the merits of an empire, an empire is usually a way for talented people to find positions and improve their social status. And that is, you know, something you will have seen with the Napoleonic marshals who have started out in obscure circumstances and talented administrators who have risen. And for the British, it is the same. The opportunity is there. So I think a lot of the sort of the middle class and the rising middle class is either able to be co-opted by the state in some way internally or they ship themselves voluntarily overseas to seek out these opportunities which I think leaves the working class in a very difficult position because they don't have this sort of leverage with the rich middle class that they need to push hard for political reform successfully. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit ago uh, mm-hmm. that the, the British government had a an issue with local exerting power at the local level uh, because one of the things that some of the French historians have commented on about this period, uh, with some of the various disturbances, uh, coup attempts, uh, attempted uprisings, protests, etc., uh, was that the French government was relatively effective at, at least at this time, at controlling its troops at the local level. Uh, mm. There were some, some instances where there were protests and there were skirmishes that were fought between the troops and, uh, and, and, and rioters. But that, that didn't escalate into bloodshed. Some of these historians have drawn, drawn this in comparison to the actions of the, the, the militias in Britain and, and their role in violently putting down, getting out of hand and putting down things like uh, the what became known as the Peterloo Massacre. At a local level, the, the British, well, the British have this excellent army and it's it, it performs very well. And it is a state army. Of course, it's a royal army. But it's very much tied into a regimental structure and it can be deployed in in sort of various places around the world, which means that British forces are always stretched and on rotation somewhere. So to take the pressure off, they have a militia system, which is where you get sort of local worthies and local men who are avoiding military service overseas by joining the militia but still getting the sort of kudos of being in the military wearing the uniform but they're not very well disciplined usually Uh, they're often considered overdressed and sort of overpaid but underperforming the big problems is that the british state can't just order things to happen it's not an autocracy like in Russia or in Prussia, it has this strong tradition of the rule of law, which is great, obviously, from everyone's point of view. And it's something that was highly regarded. But it means that actually the courts were quite good with protecting the rights of 
what was essentially the local landowning class. So the local landowners had a lot of freedom and power, um, but they were operating within the framework of the rule of law. They were often the judges themselves. They were magistrates and justices of the peace. They would know the militia quite well. And they had a sort of almost incestuous relationship with the local militia. So you get these situations where local militias would clamp down on someone and the local magistrates who know them very well would back them to the hilt. You know, everything was fine. Yes, of course, you had no choice but to go in hard, you know, on guns blazing, as we would say today. And the the Peterloo massacre is the sort of most extreme version of this, where they've got this huge crowd of very peaceful protesters. The local magistrates lose lose their tempers, lose their heads, make some bad decisions, and eventually the local militia is sent in. And the local militia don't know what they're doing in terms of crowd control. You know, if you send in cavalrymen with swords you're not defusing a situation you're escalating it the crowd panics people are sabered the militia find themselves trapped and the regular army has been looking on they've been called up to support this and as far as they're concerned it seems to be well we've been asked to support the militia cavalry that's the militia cavalry presumably under attack by a local crowd our job support off we go and they start laying into the crowd as well and it's it's pretty vicious it's sort of the nadar of the british political movement for reform you know it it's called the peterloo massacre because that is directly mocking the government's sort of triumphalism over waterloo instead this is the army's darkest hour, as it were, the massacre of civilians. And when you look at the actual mechanisms of the day, it was, you know, it's a war crime, essentially. There is no need for the military to do what they're doing. But they've drawn up this plan to help control the crowd, and it's all gone wrong. And people die and are injured quite horrifically with sabre cuts, And eventually you realise that actually even the regular infantry have joined in and they fought this what could be almost a perfect Napoleonic battle plan only to find actually your enemies are civilians and you didn't need to do this. So it's a very dark time for the British military and the reputation of the British state. Obviously, with with our own podcasts, uh, we all focus on a particular area and a particular setting. Uh, but it's easy to forget just how connected uh, all these countries were at the time. Mm. Uh, I, just the other day, I was reading about uh, some French political protests in 1820, uh, in which uh, among the various uh, chants that the protesters set up, things like, you know, uh, long live the charter, the charter of government, uh, some long live Napoleon, long live liberty. Uh, there was also long live our brothers from Manchester, mm. uh, which is a, a reference to uh, the the people who'd been killed in the Peterloo massacre. These French students and workers were aware of what had happened uh, across the channel and uh, had, had sort of weaponized it into a, uh, a political slogan. Yeah, and it, it's completely understandable. It is sort of a seminal event in the British labor rights movement. You know, it still has traction today culturally. 
And I think the British state knows it has blundered here, but it's not really it's not really willing to address the grievances for another nearly 15 years. What was what was the dominant political question in British government in these in these this, this sort of decade after Waterloo? Well, the, in terms of foreign policy, the big question was actually the uh, political arrangement of the Mediterranean. Um, for the British government, that is a big question to be answered. You know, what's going to happen with the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean? What's going to happen with Corfu, with Crete, with Malta? What's going to happen about the Greek War of Independence? What's going to happen in Italy? Will a resurgent France uh, start to dominate the Mediterranean? Is there a danger of a resurgent French fleet? What's going to happen with the trade links from India up through the Persian Gulf and you know across the the isthmus and then into the Mediterranean? So for them, that's a a very big focus when they're looking outwards is still this fear of the French, essentially. Um, But domestically, of course, they're desperately struggling with Catholic emancipation and with uh, the reform bill, which is the widening of the franchise. So things that I think the French would recognize as sort of domestic issues that were a high priority. The, for the French were in this time internationally were sort of caught in the middle uh, between, on the one hand, Britain, who the, the French government, uh, successive French governments, made their number one priority to uh, get on Britain's good side, be a friend with, to Britain, and the traditional continental monarchies of uh, Austria, Prussia, and Russia. On the other hand, the Bourbons were, of course, a traditional monarchy, but they were a constitutional monarchy, mm. so they they were, felt sort of torn. Uh, and you saw that you would see this play out in Italy when the French government wasn't going going so far as to back the reactionary course being pushed by the Austrians, but mm. also wasn't uh, opposing the uh, reactionary course being pushed by the Austrians. Uh, this ended up uh, alienating both the left and the right, uh, who joined together in a to try to rebuke the government for their muddled Italian policy even though the two sides voting uh, in favor of this rebuke uh, disagreed on what the replacement policy should be. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, after you know, a generation of war with Britain and in a larger sense, uh, a century uh, of, of conflict with Britain, people of all political stripes have decided that enough is enough. It's these guys are, are on the up and up and we want to we want to keep them close. A lot of the most prominent French political figures in this time would serve as ambassador to London. It was the most important diplomatic mm. role. Uh, Talleyrand was uh, would would serve as ambassador to London. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the French Prime Minister Elie Decazes was when he was uh, toppled in a domestic power struggle. His uh, golden parachute was he was appointed as ambassador to London. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jules Polignac, who would become uh, Charles X's uh, most important minister, was also ambassador to London. It was it was far and away the most important international role because the the French were were tired of getting kicked around by the British, and they decided if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, and I think it, it's really important to remember just how culturally powerful and admired France was. You know, the British, you know, had their differences with the French culturally, but French culture, French art, French science, uh, French cooking, it was all revered by the British. And you can just look at the British language from the period and see how much uh, has been adopted from French, you know. 
a lot of British military terminology of the time, uh, you know, was adopted wholesale from French practices and languages. You know, uh, most of the British aristocracy would expect to speak French. You know, there was this sort of, I think, feeling that the French had sort of lost their mind during the revolution. And it was quite stunning because everyone admired French culture before and everyone was sort of hoping it was going to get back to what it was after. My thanks to Chris of Age of Victoria for that discussion. You can learn more about his show by visiting ageofvictoriapodcast.com or on Twitter at Age of Victoria. I'd also like to thank my generous Patreon supporters, who help support the show by chipping in a few dollars a month. Since I last thanked Patreon backers, I've gotten pledges from Liz Glanz, Cara DiDemizio, Mark Lemke, Michelle Gersich, Charles Noah, Madeline Winters, and Rob Coglin. Your support helps keep the show going. If you'd like to join them, you can learn more at patreon.com slash thesiecla. I also got an email at david at from a listener asking how they could help support the show if they didn't have the money to make a regular monthly contribution. That's a great question. While I of course appreciate any financial support you're able to offer, the most meaningful thing you can do is to spread the word about the show to people who you think might be interested. Sharing the show with friends, family, and followers helps grow my audience, which makes me feel proud about the work I'm doing here. You can also help support this show, and any podcast you like, by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. Those ratings and reviews help us attract new listeners and make a huge difference. I know it's been a while since the last fully scripted episode of The Siecla, but fear not. Today's discussion of Britain was only a teaser for the broader look at Europe in the aftermath of Waterloo that I'm partway through writing, and we'll be sharing with you before the end of the month. Keep an eye on your feeds for the upcoming episode 17, Europe in Concert. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.